I think that's where the American public is. They don't want to go back to isolationism. They understand that in the 21st century, in America, that builds moats around it and that returns to the Western Hemisphere, that won't work. It's the week of April 12th, and welcome to episode 75 of Fault Lines, the National Security Institute's podcast that explores the disagreements between the political left and right on issues of national security and foreign policy. Today, Lester Munson will be doing a deep dive with Charles Kupchin, author of the recent book, Isolationism, A History of America's Efforts to Shield Itself from the World. Dr. Kupchin currently serves as senior fellow at the Council on Foreign Relations and as a professor of international affairs at Georgetown University's Walsh School of Foreign Service and Department of Government. Previously, Dr. Kupchin served as Special Assistant to the President and Senior Director for European Affairs on the staff of the National Security Council from 2014 to 2017. Charles, thanks for joining us on the podcast. My pleasure. Can you talk about isolationism? It's a fraught term. Uh, Americans can react instantly to it positively, uh, I suppose, uh, negatively why you decided to write this book and how your conception of isolationism has changed through the process of you doing this work. Well, you're right to say that it's a, it's a fraught term. Um, not that many Americans are going to, to greet it with glee because it's some, in some ways it's a dirty word and it acquired uh, its pejorative character on December 7, 1941, when the Japanese bombed Pearl Harbor and many accused the isolationists, the America First Committee that formed in 1940 to block the nation's entry into World War II from being naive and, and leading uh, the United States down a deluded path. I started to think about American internationalism and the potential return of an isolationist sentiment way back in the 90s after the Berlin Wall fell down because I noticed that coverage of foreign affairs and the press fell off a cliff. Neither Congress nor the public showed the same interest in foreign policy that it had during the Cold War. Then we get 9-11 and everybody's riveted on the Middle East, but then there's a turn against the wars of 9-11 and a sense that the American public has grown weary. Donald Trump in some ways was a continuation of Barack Obama's effort to retrench, to pull back from the Middle East. Uh, and I started writing this book well before Trump was elected, around 2012, because I felt that, that the inward turn had begun. I felt that it was necessary for Americans to know more about their statecraft prior to Pearl Harbor, not just post Pearl Harbor. And in many respects, it's a history and a narrative and a part of the American experience that we've lost. And so I really wanted to go back and tell that story and to try to rehabilitate isolationism in the sense of saying, listen, there are good bits and bad bits to isolationism. There are good bits and bad bits to internationalism. Let's look at American history writ large as we feel our way forward. Can you expand on the concept of the good bits of isolationism. I feel like today, much of the talk, rightly or wrongly, kind of links isolationism to a racist past for the United States and perhaps portends a racist present and future. What are those good bits of isolationism? 
Well, we still live in a country in which if you say, let's pull out of the Middle East or let's downsize our footprint abroad, someone is going to rise up and say, ah, a deluded isolationist. And I think that that's not fair and it distorts our public debate and it distorts American history. Because from 1789, when we began life as a federation, until 1898, the Spanish-American War, the United States was isolationist in the sense that we were expansive in North America. We were avid traders abroad, but we did not want to extend our strategic reach beyond the mothership. Uh, Yes, we grabbed a bunch of territory from Mexico. Yes, we tried and failed to grab Canada. But once we made it to the Pacific, we stopped. And Americans listened carefully to the words of George Washington, who in 1796 in his farewell address said, the country should have commercial connections with everyone, political connections with no one. Let's tend our own garden. And one of the reasons that Americans stuck to that guideline is that it worked. The U.S. rose like a star over the course of the 19th century, particularly after the Civil War. Amazing economic growth, amazing population growth. We were investing in canals, railroads, roads, industry, not in colonies and not in battleships. And by the end of the 19th century, the United States had emerged as a leading economic power. And so in that respect, isolationism is part and parcel of how and why the United States was able to become a leading world power. It rose in unmolested fashion, in large part because it stayed out of trouble abroad. So in that sense, isolationism was a great success. Now, on the other hand, It's also what led us to run for cover in the 1930s when Nazism and militarism were spreading in Europe and Asia. So that was a that was the dark side uh, of isolationism. But, you know, my message here is let's let's have a a full discussion. Let's look at the, um, the past. Let's ask what works and what doesn't. And maybe and this would be my position, there is still wisdom in what George Washington said. There is still wisdom in the idea that at some times, the United States is better off disengaging abroad rather than engaging. And how does um, the American concept of isolationism and the role it's played in our history differ from isolationism in other countries? You know, there aren't a lot of good historical examples of isolationism. Uh, One would be Japan during the Tokugawa era, in which the the Japanese really turned inward. It had minimal trade and controlled trade with other countries. And one key difference between Japanese isolationism and U.S. isolationism is that the U.S. has always been ambitious abroad, culturally, politically, and economically. That is to say that even when George Washington was saying, we want political connections with no one, Americans already believed in American exceptionalism, and they believed that the American brand should be exported, but only by example, whereas the Japanese were politically, ethnically, culturally 
inward looking. They wanted to cordon themselves off from the world. Another example would be the UK under the era of splendid isolation. And the key difference there is the, the UK wanted to be isolated from the continent. It didn't want to engage in great power rivalry with France or Germany or Russia, but it was a huge ambitious empire. In the case of the United States, we didn't want to engage in great power rivalry, nor did we want to play the game of colonization and imperial extension. For the first 120, 30 years of American history, we were content to become a dominant power in North America and the Western Hemisphere, but we did not want to extend strategic commitments beyond the boundaries of the United States. You mentioned American exceptionalism. The concept also plays a role, I would say, in American interventionism abroad. So how does that thread be part of both our isolationist instinct and our interventionist instinct? Well, if, if there were to be, in my mind, a single best explanation for the durability of isolationism in the 19th century, it was exceptionalism. And exceptionalism came in a lot of different flavors. One flavor was geographic. We have big oceans on the east and west and small neighbors to the north and south. Let's bank on our natural security. One version was uh, libertarian. Uh, that expansion abroad would imperil liberty at home. Because if we built a large federal government and a large army and navy, they would suppress domestic liberty. One version, as you mentioned a few minutes ago, was racist that America was exceptionalist because it was populated primarily by white Anglo-Saxon Protestants. And we don't want to mess with that population by including in it non-whites and non-Protestants. And one of the reasons that one proposal after another to expand overseas was swatted down was because if it came to Cuba or Puerto Rico or the Virgin Islands, or Hawaii, or chunks of Latin America, we would be bringing into the body politic individuals that were not white. And that was so controversial that it, it provided an effective block on uh, expansion. And then a final version that I would point to is pacifism. It hasn't been prominent in the American debate today, but if you go back to the early 19th century, New England was very pacifist. Many New Englanders refused to fight in the Revolutionary War. They refused to fight in the War of 1812. They opposed the Mexican-American War. Uh, and so there was a strong pacifist element to isolationism, which returned after 1898, the Spanish-American War, and continued right through uh, the interwar period. Now, the big change occurs in 1941, and that's when isolation, uh, excuse me, internationalism becomes a justification for going abroad. If we can't change the world by example, we're going to change the world through force and intrusion. And that's why ever since 41, American exceptionalism has really been a justification for international ambition, not the opposite. There was one short-lived attempt in 1898 to make that switch. Right When McKinley decided to attack Spain and push them out of Cuba, he told the American people, we're doing this 
to take manifest destiny on the road. We're doing this because we have an obligation to civilianize and Christianize those who don't know our way. Well, guess what? The U.S. took over Cuba, Puerto Rico, Hawaii, Guam, the Philippines, the Wake Islands, Samoa, and Americans said, what the heck is going on here? You told us we were taking manifest destiny on the road. We've become an empire. And that's why that first push at changing the nature of American exceptionalism ultimately failed. Have you seen a differentiation uh, on the question of isolationism and, of course, also interventionism between the president and Congress over time? Has one branch of government tended more towards the isolationist than the other? Uh, that's a very interesting question. Um, I would say that it, it really depends on the era and that in, in many instances in the 19th century, Congress was more cautious than the president and that uh, that is probably more the rule than the exception, and which is partly understandable. You know, presidents like to have a free hand. They like to get out there. Uh, secretaries of state, they increase their power and their resources through ambitious foreign policies. So I would say more often than not, expansion was shot down by Congress. That having been said, there have been many presidents that have been quite cautious, many secretaries of state quite cautious. I mean, one of the you know, billboard statements for caution and restraint abroad comes from John Quincy Adams. When he was the secretary of state, he later became the president. He said, the United States should go not abroad in search of monsters to destroy. So that was coming from the executive branch. Another clear example would be Grover Cleveland. He was elected for a second time after his uh, predecessor had pushed Congress to annex Hawaii and to annex Samoa. And Cleveland said, we want nothing to do with Hawaii or Samoa. What are we doing? And he tried to pull the whole thing back. Uh, so there are two examples of, of the executive branch holding back. But I would say for the most part, Congress has been more, more skeptical. Um, in the 30s, it was everybody. Congress was against intervention in World War II. Roosevelt was going along for the ride. Uh, isolationism really had a political lock on the system. That didn't change until the 1940s. And then after the, the Second World War and the Cold War, the real battles that took place were in the early 50s, the late 40s, between presidents who wanted to do more, a Congress that was reluctant. And that fight really played itself out by 1953-54, when the isolationist voices that remained on Capitol Hill were effectively silenced. And ever since then, you've had a few a few voices, a Patrick Buchanan, a Ron Paul, a Rand Paul. But other than that, isolationism in Congress was effectively put to bed in the early 1950s. For me, at least, one of the most significant figures in that immediate post-World War II period was Arthur Vandenberg, 
the senator from Michigan, the Republican senator who had been fairly isolationist before the war and then came out after the war as an interventionist. He worked closely with Harry Truman on any number of multilateral initiatives, the UN, NATO, that kind of thing. What was special about that time that so many in the United States turned away from isolationism and more towards interventionism as an approach? You know, I I think that uh, the experience of the 1930s was searing. And beginning in the mid-30s, Congress began to pass neutrality acts, which prevented the United States from even commercial engagement with belligerents abroad. And those neutrality acts tightened over the course of the 1930s. And even after World War II broke out, Roosevelt was able to get Congress to approve assistance. First, what was called cash and carry, where Britain and others could bring their own ships across and buy goods, including war goods, but they had to pay in cash and go carried on their own ships because of World War I when U.S. ships were sunk by Germany and it pulled the U.S. into the war. And then in 1941, Lend-Lease, where he's actually giving excess ships and aircraft and other things to those fighting the Nazis as well as the Japanese. But he wanted to keep the U.S. out of the war. And then all of a sudden, we're attacked. Pearl Harbor, the U.S. enters the war. It's a global conflagration. And I think many people said, boy, that was a mistake. We stuck our heads in the sand. We thought that we could run from evil. We were wrong. And that's when isolationism as well as appeasement became dirty words. And ever since then, it's been we need to stand up to aggressors abroad. We need to make sure that Eurasia is not dominated by a hostile power. And there really was for the first time in American history, a bipartisan centrist coalition behind liberal internationalism and the peacetime deployment of U.S. troops through uh, multilateral institutions to keep the peace. That was a a sea change. And that's when Vandenberg, the, the senator that you're referring to, said, isolationism is now dead for any realist. So kind of fast forwarding to our time, and I'm not counting the presidential race in 2020. So four of our last five presidents, it seems to me, at least when they won office initially, campaigned as the more isolationist of the two candidates. If you go back to Bill Clinton, he said, it's the economy, stupid. He was campaigning against George H.W. Bush, a sitting president who had called for a new world order, which may have been a not a great phrase to use in retrospect. After Clinton, George W. Bush uh, won. In part, he campaigned against peacekeeping and a vigorous U.S. presence in the world. Obama came in after Bush, criticizing the Iraq war intervention as a candidate who would focus more on domestic concerns. And Trump, of course, comes in as as an open nationalist and talking about pulling back from our commitments to allies and adversaries abroad. But I, I guess the question is, each of those, with the exception of Trump, possibly, became more internationalist in office. And once they won the seat, they saw that their path either to re-election or success in the history books seemed to be related to a vigorous U.S. involvement around the world. What is, 
did you did you take a look at that phenomenon? Is there something about the office of president or the way we run our government in this generation that impacts that kind of decision making? Fascinating issue. I mean, I, I might put your question even more forcefully in the sense that all of these presidents were retrenchment presidents. They wanted to offload commitments. You know, we remember George W. Bush for the opposite, but it's important to keep in mind that before 9-11, he was very, he, he, he was more of an isolationist than anything. He wanted to focus on the Western hemisphere. He was very skeptical of overreach. Uh, had it not been for 9-11, I think he would have been a very different kind of, of president. Obviously, then those attacks began the long wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, and that changed the situation. Obama runs on re-election on a bumper sticker that it's time for nation building at home. And Trump was from his era of presidential candidacy right through the end, a kind of avowed neo-isolation. So what's going on there, I think, is, is that they are listening to the American public. And the American public has expressed weariness with internationalism. I think that, you know, I, I'm not a big Trump supporter, but I think he was an astute politician who read in the American public a sense of too much world, not enough America, too many wars, too many packs, too many alliances, too much free trade, too many immigrants. Stop this train. I want to get off. Uh, and I think for many Americans, that stop this train mantra is a function of the fact that many have been on the losing end of globalization. I mean, that's the simple truth. And I think all of the presidents have, have sensed this problem, but it wasn't until Trump that we were aware of the size and scope of the problem. And now Biden, in my mind, has to correct for Trump's overcorrection. And I think that's what he's trying to do when he says, we need a foreign policy for the middle class. What is that? Well, it's a much nicer term than America first, but it kind of is the same thing. We need a foreign policy that puts Americans first. And I think that Biden's doing that because he learned the lessons of Trump. We got a lot of unhappy voters out there and we need to listen to them and we need to pursue policies at home and abroad that restore the political solvency of the American government. Uh, and, you know, this is uh, this goes back. I mean, if you look, for example, at at 1941, the America First Committee, why Roosevelt wasn't entering the war. 80% of the American public was opposed to entry into World War II. Uh, and so the public matters a lot. It helps explain why Congress has been, has been skittish. The one, one caveat I would offer is that, you know, I think the public gets it in that if you look at public opinion polls today, they want out of the Middle East, but they want to stay put in Europe. They want to stay put in Asia. They understand the need of our big ticket strategic commitments. And that's why in the book, I end up in a kind of a middle ground, because I think that's where the, the American public is. They don't want to go back to isolationism. 
They understand that in the 21st century, in America, that builds moats around it and that returns to the Western Hemisphere, that won't work. There are too many global challenges. But on the other hand, we can't continue to overreach. We can't continue to try to turn Iraq and Afghanistan into Ohio. And so I think there is a middle ground that's politically sustainable. I think Trump went too far, but Biden seems to be aiming to try to find that middle ground. I was trying to think of a joke I could make about the Big Ten, about Ohio State not making it into the final four. Maybe maybe we're trying to make those countries more like Michigan. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Charles, I, I have to say, I completely agree with you uh, on, on your analysis about the Biden administration and kind of where the American people are. What's your take on the challenge from China? There does seem to be a bipartisan interest in a vigorous response to China's emerging global policies of authoritarianism, debt traps, a very aggressive kind of mercantilist capitalism in which their companies seem to be working with their government to thwart our values. Is that something that could change the dynamic in the next few years? I mean, it's already changing the dynamic in the sense that I don't expect to see any appreciable decline in defense spending. I don't expect to see American troops coming home except from Afghanistan, Iraq, and Syria, maybe some from Africa. And even if they are pulled out from those regions, they may end up going elsewhere, for example, to Japan or Korea. And so given the fact that China and Russia are both powers that resist what we call the liberal international system, the U.S. is going to continue to be a country that assumes responsibility for global leadership and that puts its power, both its material power and its political power forward. Were it not for the rise of China, were it not for Putin's troublemaking, I think you and I would be having a different conversation today. I think it would be about the potential return of American troops to the homeland. I think the American people would say, why do we have tens of thousands of troops in Europe? Why do we have tens of thousands of troops in the Far East? They don't need to be there. But the public, in my mind, understands that they do need to be there because there are still big challenges ahead in preserving a global international system. And those challenges are, in fact, getting higher, more considerable. And that's because we know from history that when we move to a world of multiple poles of power, when we move to a world in, the, in which there will be no hegemon, no captain at the helm, things are going to get bumpy. And we are moving rapidly to that world. China will have the world's largest economy in a few years. And unlike the Soviet Union, which in my mind was never really a peer competitor of the United States, China will be a peer competitor. In fact, they may pull ahead of us on artificial intelligence. They may pull ahead of us on scientific patents. You know, they're pretty good at what they do. Uh, and so I think we need to take seriously the challenge that, that China poses. That having been said, I'm not someone who believes that we will or should anticipate a new Cold War. We can do better than that. 
the international economy is irretrievably interdependent. Decoupling is not on, except in limited areas, high-tech areas. When it comes to climate change, cybersecurity, reigning in North Korea, dealing with new rules of the road on digital commerce, reigning in violent extremism. We can't do any of those things without the help of Beijing. And so I think we need to find a balance between standing up to Beijing, telling them what our red lines are, but preserving a working relationship capable of meeting and pursuing common interests. Charles, I can't not uh, take the opportunity with you on the podcast to ask about changes in Europe. It seems to me as an amateur observer that the European Union is changing while we're not necessarily paying attention. The Germans seem to be moving closer to Russia, the UK clearly moving away from the continent. What do you see as as maybe the immediate future of U.S. Atlantic relations, U.S.-Europe relations across the Atlantic? Should we be worried about these dynamic changes going on on the continent? I wouldn't say that we should be worried. I think that we need to understand that Europe is maturing a bit and that that may require the United States to adjust its diplomacy, to give Europe a wider berth, to understand that Europe may not always be willing to follow the U.S. lead, to welcome a stronger Europe. That having been said, I think we still suffer from a Europe that is too weak, not too strong by the European Union, that is not sufficiently advanced, that it can act with a single voice geopolitically. The president of France, Emmanuel Macron, talks about the acquisition of what he calls strategic autonomy. That is not going to happen anytime soon. The Europeans will remain dependent on the United States, both to protect European territory and to help carry out missions further afield. But I think that Europe has made some important strides ahead in the recent past, and I'll just tick off a few of them. One, staying unified on Brexit and handling Brexit in a coherent way. This is the departure of the UK from the Union. Number two, passing for the first time in its history a major COVID relief package which mutualizes debt. Never before in the history of the European Union has that happened. COVID rollout, vaccine rollout has not gone particularly well, but the Union has tried to take a a common approach to the issue. Um, I would say the biggest blight on the European map is the departure of the UK from the EU. It's a setback for the UK. It's a setback for the EU. It's a setback for the United States. The European Union is a poor place, a less powerful place, because one of its major players has departed. And, you know, just to put it in stark terms, I I think that the UK has taken early retirement. You know, the London likes to talk about global Britain, and now that we're free from the EU, we're going to go out and conquer the world. I'm not so sure. You know, if you look at, you know, where is London today putting its efforts? 
It's putting its efforts on trying to figure out how to send goods from the UK to Northern Ireland, which is part of the UK, because as part of the Brexit deal, there is now a border of sorts in the Irish Sea. Does it really make sense for the United Kingdom, one of the world's leading powers for the last several hundred years, to be spending its days figuring out how to send agricultural products to Northern Ireland? I mean, please, there are more important things to take on in the world. So I'm quite distressed by Brexit. I hope it goes smoothly and that the UK returns to being a key partner of the US and of the EU. But uh, there's a lot of a lot of hard work ahead. But one final comment: I think that the general relationship between the U.S., the U.K., and the EU is going to be really good, and that's because Biden is an Atlanticist, Tony Blinken is an Atlanticist, Jake Sullivan is an Atlanticist. They believe in NATO. They believe in Europe, and and. I think they correctly perceive that the United States, along with other Western democracies, has been living through a deeply troubling historical period when it comes to who we are, the practice of liberal democracy, the rule of law. And as a consequence, I think there'll be a big effort to make sure that the U.S. hangs together with European democracies to make sure that the system, the way of life that we together have fashioned is strong and stable. Uh, there may, uh, some of our Irish friends may find poetic justice in the idea that the Brits are spending a lot of time trying to figure out how to deal better with Ireland, parenthetically. All right, Grant, what question should I have asked that I did not? I really love the conversation and it's given me a lot to, to think about and I hope our, our listeners as well. I just want you to sort of talk to us about how you see sort of the stories we tell ourselves as part of the larger turn from interventionism to isolationism in the modern era. So in your book, you talk about how the idea of American exceptionalism changed over time. It went from America's exceptional and thus we should protect her to like America's exceptional and you should be exceptional too and taking it to other countries. And I wonder how much of foreign policy itself is built on those stories we tell ourselves rather than the actual nuts and bolts that people, for the most part, don't care as much about as we do. Maybe, maybe I'll, I'll answer that question by telling a few stories since it will, it will drive home the point. The best way to answer a question. Yes. You know, for, um, for many, many decades, the, the dominant stories that it shaped public attitudes toward engagement abroad were about holding back, were about restraint, were about isolationism, were about staying out of trouble and staying out of packs that could bind us. Let me just quickly share two stories. In 1778, the United States, not yet the United States, is losing the Revolutionary War, looking at the prospect of remaining a colony of the United Kingdom, and despite the fact that the founders were quite convinced that they did not want to tether the U.S. to powers abroad, they formed an alliance with France. The French duly sent over ships and soldiers and arms, and they pulled our chestnuts out of the fire. And the United States won the war and began life as an independent country. A few years later, in 1793, Britain and France went to war again. 
the French asked the United States for help, George Washington's response was to issue the Proclamation of Neutrality, in which he said to the French, you are on your own, good night and good luck. And effectively, Washington reneged on that military alliance in 1793. The U.S. did not form another formal military alliance until after World War II. That gives you some sense of how profoundly the country ran away from formal pacts abroad. Another example, the U.S. wins World War I. Woodrow Wilson, the president, goes to Europe and he spends months negotiating the Versailles Treaty, which includes the League of Nations, which would commit the United States to preserve peace until the end of time. Well, what happens? He takes it to the Senate on three separate votes. The Senate rejects the League of Nations and says the United States will not compromise its sovereignty by forming pacts that would give others a say in American foreign policy. Woodrow Wilson doesn't give up. He says, I'm going to take my case to the American people. And he makes 1920 election a referendum on Wilsonian internationalism in the League of Nations. The Republican candidate, Warren Harding, the senator, campaigns on a platform in which he says, I stand for the policies of George Washington. I am against entangling alliances. Well, what happens? Harding wins in one of the most lopsided elections in American history. And that begins the long era of interwar isolationism. So those were seminal events that indicate where the country was when it came to extending strategic commitments abroad. Everything changed in the 1940s. The vote in the Senate on the United Nations was overwhelmingly positive. In the 1950s, Truman took the country to war in Korea without even asking Congress for a declaration of war. He sent troops to Europe without getting permission from Congress. In the last 20 years, we've been fighting one conflict after another in the Middle East, all based on two pieces of legislation that came out after 9-11. In other words, the, the public has more or less given uh, the executive branch a free ride, a, bank's, uh, a blank check when it comes to foreign policy. And that's based on a very different mantra. And the mantra is that the United States needs to go out in the world and change the world in America's image. So we've gone from a world in which the U.S. experiment is protected by staying out of the world to a mantra in which the U.S. experiment is protected only by going out and changing the world. And where I think we are now is in the beginning of a third era where we'll be looking for a narrative that is the middle ground. No, we can't change the world by running from it nor can we afford to change the world by running it. We need to step back without stepping away. We need to start telling ourselves stories about how we can share the American experiment, but in a way that is in keeping with the appetite of the American public for engagement abroad. The book is Isolationism, A History of America's Efforts to Shield Itself from the World by Charles Kupchan. 
Charles, thanks for being with us. It was terrific uh, to have you on the podcast. It's been my pleasure. Thank you for hosting me. That's a wrap. As always, Fault Lines is produced by the National Security Institute. Find out more about the Institute and upcoming events at nationalsecurity.gmu.edu. If you have any topics you'd like us to cover in the future, send us an email at nsi.gmu.edu or tweet us at MasonNatSec. If you like what we're doing here, please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe so that more people can find our show. We'd like to thank Claude Jennings for editing, Lester Munson for hosting, and Grant Haver for producing and directing. Join us next week for another provocative conversation and further analysis of national security's fault lines.